Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 362, Dr. Andrew Hollingsworth on Mere Social Trinitarianism and Eternal Relations of Origin, Part 1. Dr. Andrew Hollingsworth has a Ph.D. in theology from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. His areas of specialization include systematic theology, analytic theology, philosophy of religion, theological method, the doctrine of God, and the doctrine of the Trinity. He's here with us this episode and the next episode to discuss his carefully reasoned article called Mere Social Trinitarianism, The Eternal Relations of Origin and Models of God, which has recently been published in the Journal of Analytic Theology. Dr. Hollingsworth, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Thanks for having me, Dale. So tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to be an analytic theologian. I'm an assistant professor of theology and Christian philosophy at a Christian liberal arts college in South Georgia called Bruton Parker College and our new seminary that we just started this spring, Temple Baptist Theological Seminary. I earned my Bachelor of Arts in Christian Studies with a focus in biblical languages and biblical studies at Mississippi College in Clinton, Mississippi. And I earned an MA in theology with a focus in philosophy and apologetics Uh, from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and I I wrote my thesis on the hermeneutic philosopher Hans-Georg Gadamer and his insights of how his philosophy can help us think about Christian discipleship. I also earned my THM and my PhD from NOBTS. Both of those were in theology, primarily systematic theology. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on theological method, drawing from the insights of the semiotic philosopher and international best-selling novelist Umberto Eco, a lot of people don't realize he was a, a sharp philosopher, but he, he was. After I graduated, I was still interested in what semiotics might have to offer Christian theological methods, so I continued my studies there for a while, focusing heavily on the work and philosophy of uh, the American philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce. For me, he was like a, a bridge connecting my continental and hermeneutic philosophy training uh, to some of the more analytic interests that I was cultivating in the work that I'm doing now. Uh, I was also doing a lot of research and writing at the time on the theology of the German theologian Wolfhart Pannenberg. Uh, In his brilliantly written systematic theology, Pannenberg had claimed that the theme or central motif or focus for systematic theology was the truth and coherence of theology. And I was just fascinated with this emphasis on the question of truth uh, for theology that Pannenberg had in his overall approach. His systematic that he wrote was without a doubt the most interdisciplinary and scientifically and philosophically engaged systematic theology written at that time, perhaps even today. And it was this approach to theology, this focus on the question of the truth of theology, that eventually pushed me over into doing analytic theology. Um, Though Pennenberg himself had preferred more continental approaches for doing theology and philosophy, he was influenced a lot by Hegel's philosophy and others. He was truly convinced that those approaches were better for truth seeking and truth preservation. Uh, but I obviously came to disagree with him on that. I saw a lot more truth-seeking and truth-preservation happening in the analytic philosophical community. And so I came to disagree with him over that and took up analytic philosophy and the analytic approach. Um, but now also, I'd already been kind of dispositioned to do that a little bit. While I was at NOBTS, most of my 
philosophy courses were taught to me by an analytic philosopher and apologist, Robert, or Bob for short, Stuart. Bob had taught me epistemology and several other philosophy courses, including my philosophical theology reading colloquium and my PhD, which though it was called philosophical theology, it was really just like a greatest hits of Western philosophy from Plato all the way up until the contemporary period. So I was already being trained some in analytic philosophy and was seeing its value for theology. Um, so having been influenced by Bob's tutelage, Pannenberg's insistence on the centrality of the truth and coherence of theology, and Peirce's insistence that on all philosophical reflection being logically rigorous, it didn't take very much. It took a very soft wind to blow me over into the analytic theological camp. And uh, not long after making that decision a few years ago, I soon became friends with practicing analytic theologians, in particular Joshua Ferris, Ryan Mullins, Jordan Stefaniak, J.T. Turner, and James Arcati, most of whom I befriended through Twitter, actually. Oh, and Chris Wozniki as well. Can't believe I forgot to say Chris's name. I had also been influenced by the writings of Richard Swinburne and William Lane Craig and Plantinga in my studies when I was in graduate school. Uh, so they had also kind of been carving out a home for me in the analytic world, though I wasn't aware of it at the time. So that's kind of my story of who I am and how I got into doing analytic theology. So in this paper, you're trying to define what you call mere social Trinitarianism. So what do you mean by mere social Trinitarianism and why is it important to come up with a definition of that? Yeah, right. That's a really good question. And um, the, the reason for this is because it's no secret that uh, in the contemporary literature on the Trinity, social Trinitarianism, especially by evangelical and reformed theologians, it's kind of like a boogeyman. And uh, there's all these uh, <laughs> attacks leveled against it, specifically where they attack a particular kind and uh, of social Trinitarianism. Uh, and then at like, this is what every social Trinitarian has in mind what they're attacking, and it's not. It's very much strawmanning um, but in his recent book, Analytic Christology and the Theological Interpretation of the New Testament, Tom McCall points out the terms social Trinitarianism actually suffers from this wide variety of uses in the Trinitarian literature. Uh, he notes, I think it's seven uses that it has. He talks about these, uh, I won't go through all of them, but for example, there's this idea that it's kind of Trinitarianism that uses the modern sense of persons, where a person as a distinct center of consciousness, will, action, and love. Some treat social Trinitarianism like it's just Eastern Trinitarianism from the patristic period. It's the Trinitarianism of the Cappadocians. Mm -hmm. Some will say that it's any model of the Trinity where there's mutual inter-Trinitarian love amongst the persons. For some, it's any kind of Trinitarianism that seeks to be the basis of some sort of social agenda. There's all these uses that McCall points out that they have. And McCall comes to this conclusion, though, that we should just abandon the term social Trinitarianism altogether. He doesn't find it useful mm -hmm. or uh, that they should use instead what he defines as real social Trinitarianism, which I don't necessarily agree with that definition either. I think what he calls real social Trinitarianism commits the social Trinitarian to more things than they may want to. But I do think that there is some sort of underlying essence, so to say, or essential core of what social Trinitarians have in mind. And so what I try to do with this idea of mere social Trinitarianism is try and decide what that core is. So, And the reason I think that this is important is because if we're going to be critiquing something, we need to be very clear about what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so that way we're not straw manning. Mm -hmm. So much of the literature currently out that critiques social Trinitarianism is, I find it largely unhelpful because it's often critiquing particular versions of social Trinitarianism, namely Moltmann's or Leonardo Boff's or Miroslav Volf's 
And then they proceed to criticize uh, social Trinitarianism as though every kind of social Trinitarianism affirms all those things that Moltmann, Boff, and, and Wolf are wanting to affirm. And that's just simply not true. Uh, prime examples of this kind of straw man can be found in the uh, the books of, for example, Craig Carter and Matthew Barrett, where they set up these examples of, I think Craig Carter defines social Trinitarianism. He bakes so much into his definition of social Trinitarianism that uh, God's temporal, that he's just a creature in the, that he's just on the same ontological level as creatures in the universe, <laughs> only greater than degree. And I'm reading some like social Trinitarians that, that I read don't say any such thing. Matthew Barrett does this too, but with the idea of having this social agenda. Mm-hmm. William Lane Craig's a social Trinitarian. He he doesn't say anything about the Trinity and a social agenda in any of his work. Yeah. Now I want to clarify. I don't mean this imply that there's no good critiques of social Trinitarianism. Um, there there have been some good ones, such as yours, Brian Lefthouse and Keith Ward's. But they don't have this straw manning problem. So the reason I think getting at what a mere social Trinitarianism is will be useful. So that way, when we're wanting to critique it or extol it, whatever our goals may be, we actually can say something about it that can apply to all of the social Trinity models. And after looking at McCall's taxonomy that he gives, I, I think that there's actually one of the options that can do the job of what everything else is other uses he lists. And I think that's the modern notion of person's understanding or what he calls MST. In my paper, mere social Trinitarianism is MEST. Uh-huh. So after looking at that, I come to the conclusion that a mere social Trinitarianism is simply Trinitarian theology that claims that the divine persons are distinct centers of consciousness, will, action, and love. McCall himself notes some prefer to say that there's three agents in God as opposed to three centers of consciousness, but I just don't know how to make sense of an agent apart from saying they're a center of consciousness, will, action, and love. I just, And also, I know some Latin Trinitarians who would want to say, well, yeah, yeah, we affirm that there's three agents in God, but we don't think they're distinct persons in this modern sense. But I don't know how to make sense of that. And if a Latin Trinitarian can claim it, then it's not clear enough to demarcate social Trinitarianism from the Latin view. And so that's what I think mere social Trinitarianism is, what I argue for. And I think that's why it's important for us to uh, to kind of get clear on what this mereness is. And so we can talk about, you know, if there are problems with it, we can actually say something accurate about it. And um, they can actually say, yes, this can map on to all of these different versions of social Trinitarianism. You know, Dr. Hollingsworth, I think the definition you just gave is really equivalent to my suggestion in my encyclopedia article that we just call these three self views of the Trinity Right. When you say a center of consciousness, will, knowledge, and action, I mean, that just means a thing which is conscious, which wills, which knows, and which acts, right? Correct, yeah. I mean, this, to say it's a center is a little bit abstract, but that's just what I mean by a self. Right, yeah. The reason I do that is I, I give the Trinitarian the term person. For you, this is a technical term. You can define it however you want. But, you know, if I'm teaching Eastern philosophy, I can explain the Buddhist no-self doctrine to anybody. Because everybody has this concept of a self, this thing which lasts through time and has these powers that we just mentioned. They think there aren't any of those, but I, say, I think that shows that there is sort of a, a built-in concept that all people have or should normally have. Why don't I just go with that? There's three of those in the Trinity. Sometimes, I, when I'm, depending on who I'm explaining it to, like when, I, when the time comes where I'm going to explain this to my Sunday school class where I teach systematic theology, I'll probably explain to them something along the lines of, say there's three persons in God, is to say that there are three first-person perspectives in God. 
That's how I've sometimes will we'll phrase it. That seems to make sense to a lot of people, at least in my circle. So, but I also realize that some don't like that terminology. So I, like you said, I give this a little more technical definition of what a person is. To say three first person perspectives might make you just think it's really one self who can perceive in three different ways. Like imagine you have the normal pair of eyes and then you have a pair of eyes in the back of your head and a pair of eyes, I don't know, right next to your belly button. And suppose you could have like a visual field through those and navigate somehow all at once, but it it would still be one self conceivably. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, But I guess you're, you're saying that for each, there should be a self that goes with each point of view. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. There's a, because I I would say that even with those three different eyes to me, since those eyes are relaying information to the same self, it would seem to be the same first person perspective. It may not be the exact same perspective, but it is the same first person to whom that perspective is going, I guess. So that's why I'd say there's three distinct first person perspectives. Okay. Yeah. You're saying it would be one complex first person perspective, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I asked Dr. Hollingsworth why so-called social Trinitarianism has been so popular recently, particularly among Christian philosophers and analytic theologians. Why do you think, at least among Christian philosophers and some theologians, there's been a lot of interest in so-called social Trinitarianism in, I guess I would say, the last 50 years or so? That's a really good question, um, because we don't really see this model now called social Trinitarianism really in the history of the church until, in my opinion, really until about the early to mid-20th century. It's kind of a, a unique view, in my opinion. It's not the classical view of the Trinity at all. I think most of this interest has to do with the so-called Trinitarian revivalism of the 20th century, starting with the theology of Barth and Karl Rahner, uh, and it runs through Jürgen Moltmann and Wolfhard Pannenberg, and it kind of comes to this fruition in the theologies of Leonardo Boff, Miroslav Volf, Robert Jensen, Colin Gunton, Stanley Grins, and a lot of others. These thinkers from Moltmann forward used to push this narrative that there was this big discrepancy um, between the Trinitarianism of the Patristic East and the Patristic West where in the East prioritized the diversity of the persons over and above the unity of the divine essence, and that the latter did the vice versa. It was very common to read in a lot of these Trinitarian works that that was the case in the early church. However, there's been a lot of historical theological research since the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, especially the works of people like Louis Aries and others, who has just shown that this is a false narrative. And that apart from some preferred analogies, there just really is no material difference in the Trinity doctrines of the Patristic East and Patristic West. Um, These historians have also shown pretty convincingly, I think, that the social Trinitarianism developed in the 20th century really doesn't map on to what any of the 4th century Trinitarian theologians developed and enshrined in the 4th century creeds. 
And so it can't really be said to be the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity that developed during these early centuries and that blossomed in the medieval period and was kind of so-called revived or retrieved by the reformers and post-reformation thinkers. But nonetheless, a lot of Christian philosophers and theologians have remained convinced of social Trinitarianism because they see it as making the most straightforward sense of the New Testament witnesses to Jesus, his relationship to the one he calls Father, and those two's relationship to the, the Spirit. Now, such a view is obviously going to be very debatable amongst scholars, but I think that's why we continue to see interest in social Trinitarianism today, despite the fact that I think it's almost kind of a consensus now this was not the view of the Trinity in the early church or the medievals or uh, the reformers for that matter. So I think that's why. I think you're right that a big impetus has been the obvious interpersonal relationship between the Father and Son in the New Testament. Because if that's really what it is, you have to have the Father and Son be the kinds of things that could potentially be in an interpersonal relationship. In other words, they got to be different persons. They can't just be different personalities of the one person or something like that. Right. I'm aware of a couple of um, historical figures, which we don't have to go off into, who are saying something very much like this, but they tend to get pilloried as tritheists by the other Trinitarians. John mm-hmm. Philoponus. I think in the late ancient period had three persons like in the Boethian sense. And there was a Mm -hmm. guy named William Sherlock in in, uh, London in the 1690s who, uh, in response to a Socinian work, published what was derided all around as tritheism, where the persons are sort of Cartesian thinking beings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not clear it's mainstream, though. I don't think it ever has been. And I know Scott Williams has his model. He's been developing this uh, this Latin social Trinitarianism, and now he's had this new paper come out uh, in the Journal of Analytic Theology where he's been going through these untranslated proceedings mm-hmm. from, I think it's the, the Sixth Ecumenical Council, yep. Constantinople Three, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how there actually seems to be grounds for something like what he's been trying to develop in his Latin social Trinitarianism. I'm, I need to focus down and buckle down and, and really work through Scott's view more. But from my initial reading of his papers and, and his and Hasker's exchange, I tended to, to side a little with Hasker on this one. I'm just not quite sure how this flattened social model can really work. But I do think what Scott's doing is very interesting, and I'm really interested in this, that he's claimed to have found from these proceedings from the Third Council of Constantinople. Yeah, yeah. No, I want to interview him about that. I mean, if he's right, then to be a conciliar Trinitarian that goes with all the so-called ecumenical councils is really a lot more costly than people have been assuming. Right, right. You know, Trinitarian Protestants tend to focus on the first four councils, really, ignoring Mm -hmm. the third for the most part. It's really the second one that's crucial. Like that's to me, that's where you first get a Trinitarian creed. But uh, Correct, yeah. Anyway, back to your paper, you do give a four-part definition of social Trinitarianism. And maybe you could read the whole thing, but I wanted to ask you specifically about this one part where you say, there's one divine essence that is three distinct divine persons And I'm wondering what the is means in that sentence when you say the divine essence is the three distinct persons. I was intentional in not giving is a a clear definition in that statement because I realized different social Trinitarians cash this out differently. Mm -hmm. Now, most of them, they're going to agree that um, it's not identity because I think, at least with on the philosophy side, at least most that I've read would agree, well, if person A is identical to the essence and person B is identical to the essence, like in the numerical sense, then just by the law of transitivity of identity, well, 
person A and person B are numerically identical to one another, which every traditional Trinitarian has wanted to deny. So obviously that's not going to work. So most of the social Trinitarians just don't prefer the, the is of identity, at least not in the on the philosopher side. Yeah. But there are two different senses that social Trinitarians do tend to use, especially from the philosophers who really dig into this question. Some, such as uh, Keith Yandel, William Lane Craig, are fine with using the is of predication, where to say that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, we're just predicating the divine nature, the divine essence of each person. And then we have some like William Hasker, who has this constitutionalist view, who wants to say something along the lines of, to say that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, is to say that each of these three persons is constituted by the divine essence. And the example to help make this make sense, in the same way when we would say water is H2O, though in one sense water is identical to H2O in a sense, what we're also typically mean by that is that water is constituted by two hydrogen atoms and a single oxygen atom. So in the same way that water is constituted by that, so the three persons are constituted by the divine essence. So those are the two ways it typically gets used by social Trinitarians. Hasker is the main one who has this constitution view. And I'm intrigued by this, by Hasker's use, because I think that actually kind of gives some strength. I know he tries to for the most part, broadly adopt uh, a lot from Craig's Trinity monotheism. And so uh, I think that this constitution view is a little bit better than the uh, the predication view. This is my personal opinion on that. Um, and I think it can help solve some of the issues of how a single trope or a single concrete particular of divinity can be tripersonal. So I, I think that's a little better, but I don't give it a clear definition in my mere social Trinitarian definition. So that way it leaves some room for them to cash it out in terms of predication or constitution. Yeah. Now, I mean, that's the right move when you're defining a, a family of theories that has to be vague in the right way. I have to say, though, I I see a lot of problems for both of these options. You know, I'm not sure that any of the historical people really are saying the divine essence constitutes the persons. Oh, yeah, yeah, I agree there. Because that sounds like just a, an inappropriate material analogy because it, that concept looks like it's home in the case of material objects. But um, I mean, the attraction of it is you're supposed to be able to have numerically distinct things, each of which are constituted by the constitutor, you know, in, in material objects, a mass of clay or whatever mm-hmm. forms a pillar and a statue, say, and the pillar and statue are supposed to be numerically distinct from each other. But mm-hmm. if you can have numerically distinct things be constituted by one and the same thing, I mean, why couldn't you then have three gods, each of which is constituted by the same divine essence? Sure. And I think Hasker's struggles mightily at the end of his book to try to say something to make it not look like three gods. I mean, that's where we were with the other option, right? If you say, well, okay, I'm saying the Father, Son, and Spirit, I'm predicating divinity of each of them. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to get into your answer to this in a second. But if divinity is everything that makes the owner a god— then you've got this God, this God, and this God. Mm-hmm. And why isn't that tritheism? I mean, this goes back to the time of Basil of Caesarea, who was constantly yeah. hounded publicly for being a tritheist for defending the Nicene formulas. This is right before the 381 council, or mm-hmm. several years before. So that kind of looks bad too. But I think you have an answer to that, don't you? In terms of kinds of divinity, essentially. Well, it's not my answer. I'm kind of drawing off the work of, you know, of Bill Craig 
and also if that's not satisfactory, son, maybe like Chad, Chad McIntosh is doing in his group identity model that he he develops. And you're right, this does connect with that, that previous question. Um, now, personally, I don't really take a, in, in the paper, I don't take a position on this. Because like I said, as we were saying, various social Trinitarians kind of tease this out differently. I, personally, I'm satisfied with Craig's claim that there are just two ways of being divine, either by being identified with God himself or simply by having the divine nature. You know, he gives his famous example of what it is to be a cat and to have felinity, such as the, you know, the, the spine of a cat. Uh, I know I'm personally been kind of content with that, and that's heavily debated amongst philosophers and theologians, and a lot of people aren't content with that, but I have been. And I see it can work with a number of social Trinitarian models as well. I think it could work with Yandel's model if he so desired it to, but that's that's different because Yandel has a very different view of what the divine nature is than Craig does. I think it works something along the lines of Chad McIntosh's group identity model. It can work with that. And again, I know it won't satisfy a lot of people, but you know, hey, as my mom used to tell me, you can't satisfy everyone. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm content there with that. that so that's how I would tend to go the, uh, with Craig's view of there's two ways to be divine. So to be divine in the highest sense, which entails being identical to the one God, that only the Trinity is divine in that way, right? Yeah, when pushed into a corner on this, I have to say that's right. Yeah, it's not clear to me that that fits with the tradition. It, I don't think it does. I don't think it mm. does. Personally, I'm uh, I'm kind of just made peace with that, mm. that I've parted from the tradition on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of people will not, um, and that's fine. They can, I'm sure they'll call me heretic. That's that's fine. I mean, if you look at the whole way it went down, you know, you had the earlier creeds, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and then there's this Arian dispute, and the, the accusation is that Arius and his buddies or his like-minded fellows don't think that the Logos is divine enough, and divine mm-hmm. enough would be to be divine in the same way that the Father is divine, which presumably that's the highest sense. But then around this strategy that Craig has, none of the persons is divine in the highest sense. They're all divine in this, I mean, it looks like obviously a lesser sense if it doesn't entail being a god. Well, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know that I follow that. When I, when I think of what it is to be a cat or to be feline, I don't think, for example, to just to be identical to the cat itself is to be more feline than that cat's DNA is to be feline. I don't know if that follows to say that this substance is a cat is a cat is more feline than to say that which makes up the cat, its DNA, etc., is less feline. I don't know that I I necessarily follow that, um, but I don't want to get us you know sidetracked off into a different conversation, different debate to be had there. That may just be competing intuitions again on that. And maybe I'm wrong on that. But you might think that the primary sense of cathood is is being a cat, and then the other senses will be being related in some way to a cat. So the sound of a cat, the look of a cat, the the weight of a cat, the fun of having a cat, it's all related to the primary yeah, sense being a part perhaps. of a cat. I guess what I was thinking more so in terms was to going back to Hasker's constitution mob, just I'm thinking in terms of like the, having the DNA of a cat the very DNA that constitutes what a cat is um, and makes up why this is a cat and not a dog or not a mole, et cetera. So I guess I'm thinking of it in terms of that. If each of the divine persons is constituted by the very DNA, so to say, I know this is just an analogy, maybe it's not a great one, but insofar that all the three persons are constituted by the same, by the divine DNA, so to say, 
and related to one another in the in a proper sense of a way that they have such a strong sense of unity that they are one God. I don't I don't necessarily see a way of saying that they're less divine than the Trinity as a whole is, mm. if that makes sense. And I will say that when it does get down to the actual Trinitarian models, this is why I think that uh, Craig's model has a slight edge over, say, someone like Yandel's model, because Yandel's model, I think, really struggles with the tritheist problem. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, even though I like this idea of the mutual interdependence notion, sometimes the way Yandel moves it, it just seems a little ad hoc to me, the way he kind of just throws this in there to say this will protect us from tritheism. Mm-hmm. But I'm not necessarily given a reason why to think that. Like, why do we need this instead of just having these three divine persons? Why do they now need this mutual interdependence to be div- truly divine? Mm-hmm. And with Craig's idea of you know God being a single soul equipped with three sets of cognitive faculties, each sufficient for personhood, taking that and kind of following this idea of this constitution analogy that I kind of that I get from Asker. I think that gives that model a little bit better edge over something like Yandel's because it kind of seems to, at least conceivably, it seems to solve this problem a little bit better of the two ways to be divine and why they're not necessarily one's lesser and one's more. Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, in the process of writing a four views book on the Trinity with those two guys. And they're kind of, um, they're kind of mm-hmm. tag teaming in a way they're I'm sure trying to move <laughs> kind of close together in uh do you think that's a good analogy, the the soul with the three cognitive faculties? I think it's the best analogy I've heard. Uh, I won't go so far to say that it's perfectly sufficient, but it's the best that I've heard outside of the early church fathers decrying, you know, the the analogy of Kerberos. I again, you know, being a Baptist, I don't necessarily have strong allegiances to these traditional formulae. From a pure reason standpoint, I don't see the problem of the Kerberos model of that, except for that the early fathers didn't like it. And I think that has to do more with their commitment to the divine simplicity. We we have to say for the uh, listeners what the Kerberos model is. <laughs> it's a mythological dog from Hercules lore. Right. To explain yeah, what three. use Craig makes of that. Yeah. So now Craig means it as an illustration, not as a strict analogy. He he yeah. he said this in some interviews, and he's tried to say this in writing too. He's actually dropped the analogy altogether now. But the mm-hmm. original use, he meant it as a springboard for thinking, not as a hard and fast analogy. But just in the similar way that Kerberos is a single dog, the three-headed beast that guarded the gates of Hades. You know, Kerberos is a single dog, uh, though it had three heads with its own brain and its own center of consciousness, so to say. We could even name them Bowser, Rover, and Spike. (laughs) Um, They could theoretically disagree with one another, but in order for Kerberos to to achieve anything, they would have to cooperate and work together. That though they are distinct persons, so to say, they are a single dog. And this is why I think Hasker's model, actually his constitution idea of his, instead of the predication, is is more helpful because clearly Bowser is not less canine than Kerberos is and neither is Rover and neither is Spike. And I think that's why, and we can still say, yes, Kerberos is a single concrete particular dog, or if you want to say it's a single trope of canine entity. To me, that's a head scratcher, Dr. Hollingsworth. Like, why does he think it's one dog? You know, think of conjoined twins there's a famous case where a couple of young ladies, you know, if you look at them at first take, it almost looks like 
of one body with two heads. Of course, but there's more than that to it. But it's two girls with overlapping bodies, right? The parents say they have two daughters. No one would sure. say that's a two-headed girl. Why wouldn't Kerberos be three dogs? Yeah, well, so first off, I don't know that the myth of Kerberos is developed enough to say it's the same sort of thing as conjoined twins. Um, it's That's kind of left open, at least to my knowledge. And I know Daniel Howard Snyder pushes back on Craig for this, but yeah. I do think to some extent this is pushing the analogy further than it's intended to go. Now, perhaps that's a weakness of the illustration, but I do think it's going further than it's intended. It's not clear to me that, you know, Kerberos is that sort of thing. You know, Kerberos could have been a, a de novo creation of, of Hades himself, for example, from the pits of Hades, I suppose, uh, to guard those gates. Um, it does, it's not clear to me that he would have had to have crossed over three dogs. It seems to me that Hades could have said, well, I'm just going to create this one dog that's going to be tripersonal. It's not clear to me that it would have had to have overlapped in this way like a conjoined twin would have. Mm. We do think in conjoined twins, there are there's a mistake, there's an error in development, and it should have been two separate, wholly not conjoined human beings. But sure. something went wrong, so then now they're conjoined. But if you're saying, well, maybe Kerberos is from a line of three-headed dogs, I don't know. I mean, part of a dog is to have a point of view, right? Uh, right. Kerberos is still a dog. He's just kind of over-equipped. I don't want to say over-equipped. Yeah. He doesn't just have one point of view. He has three. And what I think about the model is helpful, that, that I do find helpful, is, for example, say the head of Bowser bit me. If I were to say Bowser bit me, well, that's true. But if I also were to say Kerberos bit me, well, that's also true. Even though the propositional content of each statement is not identical, they're still true propositions nonetheless. Now, again, I don't want to get lost in all the weeds on this too much, but I just saying, I think this is one of the better illustrations of what Trinity monotheism has to offer. But what I think could have been better is if the, uh, the is of constitution was more in mind rather than this is a predication. It just seems to me intuitively to fit better with some of the illustrations and analogy that Craig has developed. And that's yeah. my personal take. I'm not mm-hmm. saying every social Trinitarian needs to believe that. Um, at the end of the day, you know, I know our friend Ryan Mullins is a thoroughgoing Yandelian on this, and that's fine. Um, he, he reserves the right to be wrong. Um, <laughs> I say this. I love you, Ryan. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, and I'm not going to get to say, but again, my, my goal with the paper is just to kind of give some options, you know, and these are just some of my own personal takes on the particular models of social Trinitarianism. The is of constitution versus the is of predication. Yeah. But I, I personally am not too familiar with too many social Trinitarians who have tried to push the is of identity on this, at least not in the philosophy circles. No, it's more on the theology side, particularly the reformed folks. They're just happy to have an apparent contradiction there. And they're just like, so what? The persons are distinct. And I have said things that imply that the persons are one and the same. And uh, mm-hmm. whoever said this was going to make sense, man, this is God. Right. And then there's the true uh, contradiction book that J.C. Beale is working on. Yeah, I, I have no doubt J.C. Beale could outlogic me in any kind of showdown. I, I don't doubt that at all. I think he is brilliant. I don't know. I, I guess I just don't buy it. He's a brilliant guy. He's a good guy. Yeah, he is. He's an expert logician. There's no disputing it. I, I tend to be pretty swayed by Tom McCall's concerns about the slippery slope. You know, when he was talking about the contradictory Christ initially, he was saying, no, there's, there's good reasons to think that the incarnation might just be this. I don't think it's a slippery slope to something else at all. 
Mm-hmm. But now here we are with a book on the contradictory Trinity about to come out. So it's just kind yeah. of a, well, it went from being just the current incarnation. Now it's going into the Trinity. Yeah. It's kind of the gift that nobody wants. Like, Hey guys, want to have it be a true contradiction. And all the theologians well, and the apologists are like, nah, thanks bro. It, well, it just <laughs> seems to me that uh, the next place I see this popping up at more lay levels, I, I see this is really coming up with, you know, the Calvinist Arminian debates. Do humans have free will? Yes. Is determinism true? Yes. Mm. It's a contradiction, but it's a true contradiction. So why stop there? Why not uh, be a complementarian and an egalitarian? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> inerrancy and no inerrancy. I mean, we could have fun with this all I'm day. Also, I'm, I'm going to try and be as chair to the, you know, the bread, the bread and the cup, you know, yes, it is yeah. the body of Christ. No, it's not the body of Christ. Yeah. So I, I do, I do worry about that. Um, yeah. But anyway, I don't, Again, like like you said, he's brilliant, he's sharp on this, and he's a much better logician than I'll ever hope to be. But I don't buy it, and I and I can't help but think to myself, I don't see the New Testament authors reasoning this way at all. And I'm not a traditionalist by any stretch, but I don't see precedent for it in the tradition either. Mm-hmm. Although personally, I think Athanasian Creed really rubs up against that mm-hmm. When they start using the is of identity to the Father is God, Son is God, Spirit is God. I, I think we're getting really close. And then we want to say, but the persons are not identical to one another. I think we're getting close to something like that. But it certainly lends itself to that interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly does. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Hollingsworth explains the difference between the concept of God and a model of God. Okay, so this has mostly been preliminary so far, and we still have a little bit more preliminary stuff to do before we get into the real point of this paper regarding choices that have to be made by the social Trinitarian. So why don't you explain for us your distinction between the concept of God in contrast to models of God? Yeah, so I get this from Ryan Mullins's work, which has been very helpful. But the concept of God is this idea that God is the ultimate foundation of all reality, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, how we cash that out. Mm-hmm. God just is the ultimate foundation for all reality, for all that is not God. And a model of God is going to be a particular way of cashing that out. What does it mean to be the ultimate ground and foundation for all reality? And then each model of God is also going to say something unique about the God-world relation, how God relates to the creation that he is effected. So that's the difference. So like each model of God is trying to make sense of this concept of God, but each model of God is just going to cash certain things out differently. For example, a classical theist and a neoclassical theist are going to cash out omniscience differently than an open theist is. You know, a classical theist is going to cash out divine unity different than a neoclassical theist or an op- might or an open theist will, mm-hmm. etc. So the concept of God is basically a perfect being that's the source right. of everything else. And then models of God will try to put more flesh on those bones right, right. about quite how that all fits together. What is it to be a perfect being? 
Yeah, so we could even applying this to this social trinitarianism idea. We we might could even say the concept of a social trinity is what I mean by mere social trinitarianism, whereas these different models, whether it's Craig's or Yandel's or Haskers, are different models trying to cash out with how this mere social trinitarianism takes off. We could even say something like that if we wanted to. We don't have to, but we could if we wanted to. Okay. Well, let's move on to Dero. You you come up with an acronym D E R O. In good analytic philosopher fashion, what right. does D-E-R-O stand for? Darrow just means the doctrine of the eternal relations of origin. D for doctrine, E for eternal, R for relations, O for origin. The doctrine of the eternal relations of origin, it's oftentimes used synonymously with this other phrase, the doctrine of the eternal processions. Mm-hmm. Though the relations of origin are going to refer a little bit more distinctly to the particular relations that the persons have to one another. This is the classic doctrine that simply claims that the father eternally begets or generates the son and that the father bracketed for the Western Christian church with the son spirits, the spirit. Uh, These acts happen in God's timeless or atemporal eternity. They like God have no beginning. They have no end. They have no temporal succession. There's no, the father is beginning the son now. Now he's beginning him now. There's none of that. And there's no temporal location. So he's not beginning the sun at a particular time as opposed to a different time. Same with the spirit. So they are atemporal and causal relations. And it's important to note that they are causal. You know, um, in the tradition throughout this is seen, especially in Gregory of Nazianzus and Gregory of Nyssa, where the father is the cause of the son's being and the father is mm-hmm. the cause of the spirit's being. Or if you're Western, the father with the son causes the spirit. I'm just going to say father is the cause. We can add brackets in there if people want. You know, Nazianzus gives us analogy that in the same way that the sun causes its light, but it's never without its light. So the father causes the sun and is never without his son. Mm-hmm. So there is a causal priority. And it does seem to me to be in this sense of like an efficient causation. Um, it's not this idea of like yeah. the sun's clearly not a final cause of the father or anything like that. Yeah. So so that's this idea that's in the patristic period. We see this in Nazianzus and Nyssa. And some will question, is this really the view that's in mind with like the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed of 381, where it talks about the father's begetting the son. I think it is simply just because Nazianzus is the presiding bishop over that. And I think to say that it doesn't necessarily mean this undermines the influence that Nazianzus had over that council. So I, I do think it is this causal and atemporal understanding. Yeah, of these so that's, that's what the Darrow is. So the causing is the father causing the son and the spirit. And you're right. Let's not get into the filioque on such a nice day as this. We don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. Set that off to right. one side. <laughs> uh, let, uh, go with the Eastern. Just talk about it more simply. Mm-hmm. If the father causes the son and spirit, it's causing them to exist and to have the divine essence. So this divine essence that the father's causing them to have, is that supposed to be a universal essence, like something that is in principle shareable, or is it supposed to be a particular, in which case you might wonder if it's shareable? Right. Yeah. So that's, that's a good question. And that's going to depend on the church father you ask. <laughs> I think the majority of classical thinkers, especially at least once we get up to the medieval period with Thomas Aquinas, and I think Anselm as well, are going to see this in terms of a like a concrete particular divine essence or a trope of divinity, as Haskell likes to say. Mm-hmm. But Nyssa kind of famously seems to set it up as a universal essence that's that's shared with the persons. That somehow the father's communicating a communicating a universal essence to them. 
I think that's kind of a, and I know Yandel kind of follows this on that. Yandel seems to think of the the divine nature as a universal that's predicable of each divine person. Yeah. But I think the majority of the tradition has has seen this to be a, co- a concrete particular or a trope of divinity. Mm. Uh, I think the universal view is more of a minority view. I could be wrong on that, but that's been my reading of the tradition and of contemporary scholarship. I think Basil says it's universal at some point, basically, but he's a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you might think that something like Dale's trope of humanity is a kind of thing that in principle couldn't be given to another. Mm-hmm. So you might worry about whether an individual property of divinity or essence of divinity could be shared. But I guess the whole point is, no, it is. Maybe this is where constitution might come in because people think there you're supposed to have uncontroversial cases where there's a particular constitutor that constitutes different things. Mm-hmm. So that's not so much properties classically understood, maybe. I don't know. This is mm-hmm. this is messy. It does get very messy. And um, there's a lot that we wish the patristics had worked out that they just didn't. And again, like you said, the constitution might be more helpful. And this is where it even gets a little more messy, because especially once we get into the medieval period, I think I think we've got it now we're going to talk a little bit about this later. Because this is where we start to see kind of in this medieval period, this preference to, to identify the persons with subsistent relations in God. Mm-hmm. That the father is just identical to the relation of paternity, the son to the relation of filiation, and the spirit to the relation of procession. And then they want to cash this out. These ideas of what does it mean to be a subsistent relation? Well, they're modes or ways of the divine essence being. The father is the divine essence existing in this way. The son is the divine essence existing in this way. And the spirit is the divine essence existing in this other way. I'm not convinced that's helpful. Hmm. Uh, I don't think that it really helps to be that somehow it's supposed to solve the, the transitivity of identity problem too. I'm not clear how it does that. But I know that's how some traditional Trinitarians have tried to to work that, that when we just say that this trope is being communicated, it doesn't quite make sense to me to say, well, if the father's begetting or generating the son is this particular way of the divine essence existing and the son's being generated by the father is this particular way that the, uh, the essence exists and that the spirit's being spirited by the father is this particular way of it existing. I don't see how saying, okay, this way of the essence existing is identical to the essence. First off, I don't know that a way of existing can be identical to a thing's existence. And it would still, the transitivity of identity problem would still be the case. But I guess I just have start time conceiving of this. I, I struggle to see how exactly, whether concretist or universalist, this this somehow solves the the communication of the divine essence problem. But again, that's a that's a slightly different topic. But the way I think about it, the one self Trinitarians just accept the collapse of the persons and then try to argue that it's not a bad thing. So mm. then you would basically have one person. And if you compare this mode of being with that mode of being, the idea is there's only one being in between those two. It's not identical mode, but it's an identical being. It's, it's just this one thing being this way and also being that way simultaneously or eternally. So then the persons just get to be ways God is or something, which is how some modern Trinitarians cash it out. It's how Thomas cashes yeah. it out, too. Well, Barton Rahner, arguably, yeah. the two most famous 20th century Trinitarian theologians, they're like, yeah, persons, maybe not very helpful to use that word. Mm-hmm. Why not modes of being? 
Right. Well, okay, but then you you get a father and son that can't be interpersonally related. Yeah. They're just two the, aspects the work of on, one guy. Yeah, I'm still not convinced how it, how it works out, but if anyone's looking for a somewhat clearer articulation of this and how it is supposed to look, Adonis Vidu and Stephen Doobie probably have some of the better explanations of it. Like I said, I'm not. I'm still not convinced it works because I still have there's there's this conceptual problem that I have with it. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it fixes this. You know, the law of identity problem. Mm-hmm. But I at least commend their work. Says if you're wanting to see it clearly articulated, their work is helpful for that. Mm-hmm. And Vidu does that in his book on inseparable operations, and Doobie does it in his new book on uh, Jesus and the God of classical theism. Well, Dr. Hollingsworth, it seems like we've gotten through the preliminaries of your paper, which is a lot. Uh, I'm sorry for interrupting as much as I did, but next week we'll have you back again and we'll really talk about kind of the main points that you're driving at in this paper and what consequences you say are there if you're going to be a social Trinitarian. Perfect. I look forward to it. Join us next week when Dr. Hollingsworth explains some choices that the social Trinitarian has to make. This week's thinking music has been the track RoboDuck by Airtone. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.